Good morning. My name is Peter Kroll. I'm one of the elders for our church. Uh, Once again, if you're visiting with us this morning, welcome. We're so glad that you're here with us. One question that my wife Erin and I face when we're around certain members of our extended family is, how do you convince someone who has everything they ever wanted that they need Jesus? When someone has good looks and a great job, financial stability, enjoyable relationships, and perfect health, how do you convince them that they're lacking anything? This problem is even compounded if the people in question consider themselves religious. They diligently attend church. They interact with the word of God. They participate in the proper ceremonies and do their best to honor the Lord's ethics. They talk about God on occasion, but their life's allegiance is clearly to a way of life that promotes the greatest security for themselves and personal happiness, and not to the Lord. A late seminary professor named John Gerstner used to speak of such people when he said, the main thing between you and God is not so much your sins, it's your damnable good works. What he meant by that is that hell will be filled with people who got there not because they did terrible things, but because they did wonderful things and trusted in themselves in the process. The prophet Isaiah interacted with this same set of issues in the 8th century B.C. This morning we're in chapter 22 of Isaiah's book as we work through it. If you have one of the church Bibles, it's on page 337. It'll also be up on the screen. Isaiah knew people who had everything they ever wanted. People who had climbed the corporate ladder and had succeeded. People who had even received visions from God and had every reason to assume they were on God's side. And yet the truth for these people was that tumult, captivity, confusion, and destruction were on their way. The biggest problem with these people was that they were so good, so noble, so righteous. These people had been on the receiving end of direct communication from God, and so Isaiah uses a subtle title to describe them. He calls them, we'll see in verse 1, the valley of vision. Yet there is some bad news on the way for them. And we too must grapple with this message, this questioning of the goodness of our good deeds, this challenge Isaiah has to our own self-importance. Friends, we too are in just as much danger of losing our standing, of losing our visions, as you will, if you will. Isaiah makes his case in two uneven parts. First, very short, he'll tell us who the Valley of Vision is. But then second, he'll have a four-part strategic plan for how this valley lost its visions. Can we pray? And then we'll read the first few verses. Our Father in heaven, please help us to have eyes to see you and to gaze upon you and to see Jesus Christ here in your word, even in the prophet Isaiah. 
change us, strengthen us, that we might not trust in our damnable good works, but that we would look to you alone who have done who has done great things for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First, we learn who the Valley of Vision is in verses 1 through 4. The oracle concerning the Valley of Vision. What do you mean that you have gone up, all of you, to the housetops, you who are full of shoutings, tumultuous city, exultant town? Your slain are not slain with the sword or dead in battle. All your leaders have fled together. Without the bow they were captured. All of you who were found were captured, though they had fled far away. Therefore I said, Look away from me, let me weep bitter tears. Do not labor to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. So we find ourselves here in chapter 22 in Isaiah's second cycle of prophetic oracles against the nations of the world. This section started all the way back in chapter 13. Last week, Ryan explained to us how the second cycle, this is the second of three cycles, this second one is a bit more mysterious than the first. The first cycle of judgment was really in your face. It was all about death and judgment and sudden destruction. But this second cycle of judgments, of prophecies, it's more subtle, it's evocative. It's almost what we would call today post-apocalyptic. Because it describes the desolate state of the world after the horrific, violent upheaval decreed by the Lord in the first cycle. This, The first oracle in this cycle that we saw last week referred to Babylon as the wilderness of the sea and then described what it would be like to stand on a watchtower and receive word from mounted messengers of the fall of Babylon. It's describing a situation where everything about the world you know is about to change. And now here in chapter 22, we're in the, the fourth oracle in this cycle. We had three of them last week in chapter 1. Now the fourth oracle is similar. Isaiah doesn't tell us straight out who he's even talking about. He just calls them in verse 1, the valley of vision. And you should know that the Hebrew word for vision here is not talking about a clever businessman who has a lot of vision for what his company can be. Nor is he talking about an eye exam where your vision might measure 20-20. No, the word he uses here for vision means dreams. Times when God pulls back the fabric of the universe like a curtain to show people, to give them visions about what he is up to. He's talking about the valley of prophetic utterances, the valley that has received vision, revelation from God about himself. And this valley, it's a valley where the people have seen visions. It's a valley where God has spoken and he has shown people who he is and what he plans to do. Isaiah is very concerned for these people. In verse 1, in the beginning of verse 2, he wonders why they are living lives of ease and celebration. And then at the end of 2 and into verse 3, he describes how the city has already perished. They don't even realize it. The people have already died without even a fight. They just got scared and ran away. And in verse 4, he describes how this crushes him personally, heart and soul. He refuses comfort. Why? Why is this so terrible? What is going on? Why is he so crushed 
about this defeat they don't even know about because verse 4 ends with the statement that this is concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. You see, friends, the Valley of Vision is the nation of Judah, Isaiah's own people, to whom he has been prophesying. He has been speaking since chapter 13 of his book of the fall of all the other nations and superpowers surrounding Judah. And yet, in this chapter, he takes up his case against his own people, the Jews. The poem in this chapter is tragic. It's tragic, but I I need to take a moment to give Isaiah some praise for one thing. He is an incredible poet. The way he writes is so beautiful because we'll see in this chapter as we go, for every stanza of this poem, Isaiah strings us along, evoking our emotions and drawing word pictures for us. And then every time at the very end of each stanza, the last line, he drops his punchline like a kitchen cleaver. In this first stanza, he sneaks in right at the end, that last line, the identity of this valley. It's his own people. It is the daughter of my people. This is the valley of vision. It's God's people. It's God's chosen nation. The ones that he chose to represent him to all the world. And they are to be judged just like all the other nations around them. All those evil people out there. And the rest of the chapter explains why. How it got to this place. And so in four sections, Isaiah explains the fate of Judah, how this valley lost its visions. And he explains their fate, and intertwined with his description of their fate is an explanation of their suffering. How did they get to this place where they must be treated just like all the evil nations surrounding them? First, they lost their protection. They lost their protection. Verses 5 through the beginning of verse 8. For the Lord, Yahweh of armies, has a day of tumult and trampling and confusion in the valley of vision. A battering down of walls and a shouting to the mountains. And Elam bore the quiver with chariots and horsemen. And Kir uncovered the shield. Your choicest valleys were full of chariots and the horsemen took their stand at the gates. He has taken away the covering of Judah. I'll stop there for now. Lest there be any doubt as to the identity of the Valley of Vision, Isaiah names them here in verse 8, the end of this stanza. As I mentioned, the last line of each stanza contains the punchline and it gives us the interpretive key to that section of the poem. He has taken away the covering of Judah. Verse 8. He's very clear. The nation he's talking about is Judah. And their first problem is that they've lost their covering. Now, what does that mean? What Isaiah is doing here is connecting in with an image he's already used earlier in the book. He's spoken of Judah's covering back in chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. He said, then Yahweh will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day, and smoke, and the shining of a flaming fire by night, for over all the glory there will be a canopy. 
There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. You see, friends, Yahweh himself is Judah's covering, his own glory, which resides there in a pillar of fire and a cloud, smoke, providing a canopy, a booth, a refuge, and a shelter. But that's what he said in chapter 4. But now in chapter 22, Yahweh is no longer covering them. Instead, in verse 5, he has set aside a day for them to experience tumult, trampling, and confusion, for their walls to be battered down, for their people to shout in confusion toward the mountains that surround them. Verse 6, he talks about Elam and Kir. These are allies of Babylon, the nation that would conquer Judah, and they prepare for battle. And then in verse 7, they surround the city with their chariots. And all of this is merely the outward expression of the fact that Yahweh has removed their covering. Verse 8. His glory has departed. It no longer provides shade by day and a refuge by night. It doesn't illuminate them or protect them or honor them. This is the main reason why they're at risk of danger from foreign armies. Because the Lord has removed his presence as their protection. And the next three sections describe how we got to this state of affairs. What did they do to warrant such treatment by their God? So the second thing here is that they tried everything but didn't see the best thing. Starting at the end of verse 8, on to verse 11. In that day you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest. And you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool and you counted the houses of Jerusalem and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. But you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. Friends, you get it? This place of vision, this place that had seen visions, didn't look in the right place. They didn't see the right thing. In verse 8, he says, you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest. Possibly he's talking about a royal treasury where they kept all their, their, their armory. Or possibly he could be making a mocking reference here to the temple, which had been built with lumber from the forests of Lebanon. They looked to something here. In verse 9, it says they saw the breaches made in the wall. They, they saw that there was a real problem with the city falling apart. It was unable to protect itself, so they directed their attention to their own storehouses, possibly the weapons they had made, possibly the economic vitality they had developed, possibly the religious fervor with which they conducted themselves. And then Isaiah describes this scene from the end of verse 9 to the beginning of verse 11, that they showed some real ingenuity. They engineered an irrigation system so they could access local water without ever go, having to go outside the city walls. In fact, King Hezekiah at the time did this, and he's often praised for the engineering marvel that he did. But Isaiah is tearing this thing apart. They, they got this water so they could could do this themselves. They, 
They demolished houses to barricade breaches in the wall. They set themselves up to be able to survive a lengthy siege. But the punchline and the main problem here at the end of verse 11 is that they, they had looked to their own weapons, but they didn't look to him who did it. They had seen the breaches in verse 9, but they did not see, verse 11, him who planned it long ago. They took their eyes off of their Lord, and they focused on what their hands had done. This was the first step toward losing their protection, their covering from their God. Friends, this is the perspective of the person who, when confronted with the error of their ways, their first reaction is to explain all the things they did right that have gone unnoticed. This is the response we have to correction of, yeah, but, which is a statement we don't allow in our house. You're allowed to make a respectful appeal, but there's no, yeah, but. And in this, Isaiah convicts us all. Look at how this affected their attitudes. Let us see, their attitude was unforgivable. Verses 12 to 14. In that day, the Lord Yahweh of armies called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth. Behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Yahweh of armies has revealed himself in my ears. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for you until you die, says the Lord Yahweh of armies. See in verse 12, Yahweh gives them yet another opportunity. He tells them exactly what he's looking for. Weeping, mourning, baldness, sackcloth. He wants them to reject the works of their hands and to trust him. He wants them to repent, to change what they are doing and just trust him instead. But you see what actually takes place instead. Verse 13, joy, gladness, feasting, drinking, indifference to their condition. Let's enjoy it today because we might die tomorrow. And now for the punchline, the interpretive key to this stanza, verse 14, Yahweh declares to Isaiah that this iniquity, this sin, will not be atoned for until you die. This is unforgivable. That doesn't mean that he will forgive the sin after they die. No, it simply means that he will never forgive their sin and then they will die, which puts them in the worst possible place. Does that sound harsh? I mean, I mean, when does God ever say he will not forgive sin? It is when people trust in themselves instead of in him. This is the unforgivable sin. This is why people will go to hell. This is the attitude that my works, my deeds are what got me here. And it is my works and my deeds and my efforts that will get me out of here. It is the American way. As I've raised financial support over the years to be a missionary to college students, 
I've heard a certain sentiment dozens of times over the years where people have told me, I could never ask people for money. I could never do that. I couldn't live off the generosity of others. I need to make my own living. And this, friends, is pretty near an unforgivable attitude. I don't mean that if someone believes that fundraising is hard or stressful or taxing or even that they don't want to do it, those are normal things to think or feel. Not every Christian is called to such a job as full-time ministry. And that's okay. What I'm talking about is when someone has the attitude of, I must be self-sufficient. I don't need help from anybody. I don't want help from anybody. Especially not God. I will keep to myself and be my own supplier. Friends, this attitude is damning. It is the attitude of Satan who said, not God, but me. It was the attitude of Adam and Eve, the first humans, when they disobeyed God by eating the fruit God had prohibited. Not God, but us. We don't need any help. We don't want any help. We will do it ourselves. Friends, this attitude is fundamentally opposed to what God requires of his people. What he requires is not a clenched fist, but an open hand. Not arms crossed, but arms raised in petition. Please help. I've heard it said before that the message of God's good news is not a help-wanted sign. It is a help-available sign. Only those who are willing to break down, to mourn their sin, to despair over their own ability to make it right, and to ask for help from Jesus Christ, the only one who can deliver them. Only those people end up under God's protection and merciful covering. But this wicked attitude, not God but me, the works of my hand, this wicked attitude goes deep. Sometimes it's really hard to recognize in both leaders and followers. The Lord wants to expose it, not only in the nation as a whole, but also in the individuals who live there. So that's where he goes in the rest of the chapter. Their best chiefs couldn't bear up. Verses 15 to 25. Thus says the Lord Yahweh of armies, Come, go to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the household, and say to him, What have you to do here, and whom have you here that you have cut out here a tomb for yourself? You who cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock. Behold, Yahweh will hurl you away violently, O you strong man. He will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into a wide land. There you shall die, and there shall be your glorious chariots, you shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office, and you will be pulled down from your station. In that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Helkiah, 
and I will clothe him with your robe and I will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place. And he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house, the offspring and issue, every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons. In that day, declares Yahweh of armies, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way and it will be cut down and fall and the load that was on it will be cut off for Yahweh has spoken. Yahweh makes his point here by describing the fates of two men, Shebna and Eliakim. First is Shebna in verses 15 and 19. Verse 15 tells us that he's currently over the household, but 19 tells us that he will soon be ousted from his position. Why? Because of the pride of his self-sufficiency, both in this life and the next. In verse 16 at the beginning, in this life, he thinks he has done great things and he has gathered great people to prop himself up. What have you to do here and whom have you here? But in the next life, at the end of verse 16, we learn that he's already bought his grave plot. He's hewn out a tomb, and it's a tomb high and exalted. It's on the height, in the cliff overlooking the city. Yahweh says he will not even get to lie within that tomb. Verse 17, Yahweh will grab him by the ankles. He'll whip him around and around and around, and then fling him into a faraway land where he will die, unknown and disrespected. Verse 18 says, So much for the glory of your chariots. Actually, you'll be nothing more than the shame of your master's house. This is like in the first Avengers movie, if you remember, where the Incredible Hulk grabs the villain Loki, and he smashes him back and forth. Loki, Loki had thought of himself as a god. And he smashes him. And then when he's done smashing the splintering concrete with him, he then spits at him and says, Puny god. Remember that? The only thing to complete the picture would have been if the Hulk had whipped him around and, and, and hurled him off of Stark Tower out of New York City and through the sky portal into outer space. Then it would have been more biblical. Friends, this is how Yahweh feels towards self-sufficiency among individuals, even the leaders. Beware self-sufficient leaders. Make sure you don't ever become one of them. And I speak to my fellow elders, the one of you who is here this morning. Bill, Tom and Reese, I know you're listening to the recording of this because you are good elders and you do that. You guys and I have got quite a job to do to equip and prevent one another from going this route. Let us not ever allow one another to become self-sufficient. This is one part of our calling from God, to reject self-sufficiency and to call it out in one another. But then Isaiah turns the tables on us with his second tale. That was Shebna. Now he describes the second man, Eliakim, 
It starts off so well and it sounds so promising. In verses 20 and 21, Eliakim will take Shebna's place. In verse 22, Yahweh will give him authority and the influence to do what is right. Verse 23, Yahweh says he will fasten him like a peg in a secure place. He's like a tent peg being pounded in so he can hold up the entire tent, the structure of Judah and Jerusalem. He will become a throne of honor to his father's house. People will thrive under him and they will honor him greatly. But there's a turn in verse 24. They will hang on him. Here's this peg. They will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house. They will rely on him for everything, even down to the condition of all the cups and flagons, which I think is a poetic metaphor for all the people and possibly all the details of their lives. They will rely on him for everything. And then in verse 25, that peg which once was secure will give way. It will be cut down and it will fall and the load that had been hung on it, all the honor of Judah and Jerusalem, will be cut off. Friends, this is how our God works. What does all this mean? Eliakim sounds like a great leader. He does what is right. He deeply respects the true God and seeks to honor him. He is an honorable man doing honorable work, as far as I can tell. But the people start to put too much hope in him. They rely on him for too much. And in the process, they lose sight of the Lord who put him in his position. And friends, no man can bear all that weight. No man can stand up under all of the expectations and hopes and dreams and honors of the people that he serves. And I'll be honest with you, this passage sits very heavily with me. Very heavily. The preachers of this church, the elders and I, all have a heavy responsibility. We have a charge from the Lord to preach the word of God to you, to shepherd the flock that's been entrusted to our care, to lay down our lives, to teach, to pray, and to care for you all. This is our charge. But you, friends, as the congregation, as a congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, you also have a responsibility. You have a charge from the Lord. And that charge is to be sure that you don't ever trust, put your trust in us, your leaders. You can't trust us to rescue you from danger. You can't trust us to alleviate your suffering. You can't trust us to bring you close to God. You can't trust us to be right about everything, to make decisions for you, or to guide you in the proper direction every time. We will do our best, but we are just men walking this walk with Jesus right along with you. We can't even bear up under your praise. The more honor you hang, the more hope you put on us, the more likely we are to be crushed under it. Please don't rely on us. And I ask you to please consider this soberly. Just to give one illustration, I get really nervous when I preach a sermon 
and somebody praises it lavishly. And they gush over it. Now, don't get me wrong. I need encouragement just as much as anyone else. I'm not saying don't encourage. But there is a right way to encourage a leader and there is a wrong way to encourage a leader. The wrong way to do it is to say, your sermon was so great. I love your preaching. To gush as you hang the honor of this house on that preacher like a peg. The right way to encourage a preacher is to say, thank you for your sermon. I learned ABC. Give something specific. And God is showing me that I need to XYZ. Because you see, what, what you're doing when you do that is you are pointing me and the other leaders back to the Lord and what he is doing in your life. And you're not just gushing about us. Otherwise, you'll end up hanging all the honor of this church on one or more of us, and then the Lord will have to cut down our peg to show us all that only he can carry that weight. Now, the Lord has given us some wonderfully gifted leaders. I am deeply grateful for Bill, who has a long history of obedience and loyalty to Christ and biblical wisdom. I'm very grateful for Tom, who serves as our executive pastor, and the Lord has used him to help our church flourish in new ways under his leadership. And I'm grateful for Reese, who has an incredible eye for detail and for how God has used him to help us unravel some really complicated issues. These are great men, but none of them can bear the weight of this church's reliance. Only one man can ever bear that weight. And his name is Jesus the Messiah. He spoke often about how our good deeds can keep us from God. About how our successes and our wisdom, our loyalty and our religious fervor are all worthless unless they lead us to rely more and more on Him. If you're here this morning and you don't yet follow Jesus, please understand that the worst place you can be in is to feel like you have everything and you simply don't need the Lord Jesus because it is not your evil that will send you to hell. It is your good deeds that will send you to hell. A hymn by Joseph Hart says, all the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. That is the only thing God expects. And if you're here today and you do follow the Lord Jesus and he is your love and your hope, Please understand, it is not only your evil deeds and desires that can get in the way of your relationship with the Lord Jesus, but also, and especially, it's your good deeds. Jesus didn't come for healthy people. He came for sick people who need him. Beware of trusting in not only your sinful desires, but also your damnable good works. I'm a good person. I'm a great kid. I'm a successful student. I'm not like all the truly wicked people out there. Friends, we have so much to be thankful for. There is so much to praise God for. But may we never be numbered among those in the valley of vision. God's people who had everything going for them and then lost it. By losing their protection from Yahweh himself. By trying everything but failing to see the best things. 
the Lord himself, by maintaining an attitude that was unforgivable. My deeds, the works of my hands, have got me here and will get me out of here. And they lost it by relying on themselves or on their leaders instead of on the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we bow before you. You are the great God of heaven. You sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to rescue us. And we now hang on him all the honor of our Father's house. All the honor of this church, of this generation, of your people, of your kingdom. He can bear up under that weight. Help us to honor him and to live for him and not for ourselves and not for any other person but Jesus. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.